Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Before we get into today's episode with our guest, Jesse Leon, I do want to give you a warning. This episode could be very triggering. We do talk about sexual assault, human trafficking, and drug use based on Jesse's story. So before you head into this, make sure that there are no children around and be prepared for some very emotional conversation. Here is our guest, Jesse. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Jessica, thank you for having me on your podcast today. Oh, Wine and cheese, man. Yes. Look, I met Jesse at a San Diego Latino business mixer thing. And Fred Sotelo was like, you got to meet Jesse. Oh, my gosh, you got to meet him. He's so awesome. He's coming out with a book. And, you, and I was like, literally, I was just like, okay, point me in the direction. Then he introduced us. And I then I started reading about your book before I actually got the book. I started reading about it and I'm like, holy crap. So I didn't start it as soon as I should have. I'm about 40 pages shy of finishing it. But it's so good. Thank you. Like, so good. Thank I told you. you earlier, I've been telling everybody all week they have to get this book. So let me, the book is called I'm Not Broken, a memoir by Jesse Leon. And let me read your bio. He was born to working class indigenous Mexican immigrants in San Diego in the 1970s. Jesse Leon lived a childhood that was violently ruptured. A dangerous and harrowing encounter at a local gift shop when he was 11 years old left him with a deadly secret. In this unflinching memoir of what came after, Leon shines a light on childhood devastated uh, on a childhood devastated by sex trafficking, street life, and substance abuse. From being the lone young person of color in Narcotics Anonymous meetings and coming to terms with its own sexual identity, to becoming an engaged mentor for incarcerated youth, Leon found the will to live with the with the love and support of his family, friends, and mentors. I'm Not Broken is a heartbreaking story of resilience, a powerful testament to the possibilities of self-transformation and his self-acceptance and an inspirational portrait of one young man's indomitable spirit to survive against all possible odds. <laughs> okay, so it actually starts at your Harvard graduation. Right. And I just, like, that's how you start. That's the prologue is starting at your Harvard graduation. And I'm reading this and then I'm reading the very first chapters going... What Wait. happened? <laughs> Wait, because you're talking about growing up, your your you know, your parents immigrated here and this is you grew up in San Diego, which obviously I grew up in San Diego, which made to me I was telling you it makes I feel like it connects me a little bit more because you're talking about all these places. I'm like, oh I know that place, I know that place, some places I don't know. Right? But within the first fifty pages 
your life has a complete 180. Mm. And I want to kind of ask you, starting because you're talking, there's like, there was a huge age difference between your mom and your dad. Huge. Like, she was in his, she was in her 20s and he was in his 60s, right? When they yeah. got married? Yeah. How, and, and obviously there was a lot of emotional and even physical abuse coming between those the, between that relationship. When you were younger and you would you would help your mom in the kitchen and doing all these things, was there a point? Because I know that you still wanted your father's approval, but also you still you had this connection with your mom. Right. Was there a point when he was calling you a mariposa when he was saying <laughs> something like that, right? And you took it as a compliment. I did. I didn't know that he meant, you know, mariposa. He was trying to not say maricón. And I did. I took it as a compliment. I was like, oh, my God, he's calling me a butterfly. I'm going to transform into this beautiful butterfly. Did you take it as you were a caterpillar at that time? Yeah, because I felt that I was that nerdy kid that just couldn't belong anywhere. I was never masculine enough to get my dad's approvals when he, I talk about it in my memoir, you know, he'd be fixing cars and he'd ask for a plier, I'd give him a wrench. He'd ask for a wrench, I'd give him a screwdriver. And he'd scream at me, bueno pa nada. You know, bueno para nada, right? Bueno pa nada, go help your mom in the kitchen, that's all you're good for. And so when he would say to my mom, you know, lo vas a convertir en mariposa, I thought, oh, wow, he does see that I'm going to become this beautiful butterfly. I may not be that butterfly now, but I'll find my way. Yeah, my dad was definitely an interesting story, oxymoron of contradictions and... At the end, when I closed his eyes when he died, I made a lot of peace with my dad. I made peace with my father years before he died, and I had to work on a lot of my resentments that I had towards him, and stuff that was taken out of the book in the editing process, like writing him letters. I used to write him long letters. Some were very loving and hurt. As a child, or is this as an adult, already in recovery, right? As because my dad left the house. Um, one day he was gone. When I got clean and sober at 18, I just, a lot of my old resentments and feelings started coming back. They tell you when you get clean and you get off drugs, they're like, you're going to feel better. But they don't tell you you're going to feel anger better. You're going to feel sadness better. You're going to feel resentment better. You're going to feel everything way better. It's going to be totally magnified and intensified. So I would spend, I spent a couple, like two or three years at different times writing letters to my dad about different issues. I never read them to him. I'd take him to the ocean. I'd read them out loud at the ocean with my sponsor or a friend. And then I'd rip up, rip up the papers into little tiny pieces I let it go or I'd burn them at a bonfire at the beach and that helped me get rid of a lot of my anger and resentment towards my father and accept him for who and what he was I've heard that often right when, you're, when you have anger and you don't like forgiveness is about you it's not about the other person <laughs> right so you have so I've actually done that before where I've written even to myself mm, tell me forgiving myself for things that I would constantly blame myself for. And I know that's almost like a, a running theme in your book is something happens to you that was truly out of your control, but you're constantly blaming yourself for, for adults taking advantage of you. And as we stated previously, and I'm going to do a, uh, there will be something that before this, that, you know, that this, in regards to the topics of this book and the things Trauma, trauma on. warning. Yeah, but you know, from being, you know, sexually abused when you're 11 years old, right. and what not fascinated me, but what like I the first thing 
you didn't have a, obviously a, you didn't have a close relationship with your father nor your older brother. Right. One of the first things I had marked in here was when you had taken your first drink at nine years at old. nine years old. From your dad's whiskey bottle. Brandy. A brandy. <laughs> but the fact that this happened so early on and you remember that feeling. Oh, totally. And that I think is the feeling of an alcoholic or addict that we have a saying in recovery one is too many a thousand's never enough when something feels really good that first time I'm off to the races and that burning sensation that elixir of the gods going down my throat into my chest and just giving me a sense of peace comfort and strength at nine years old was like oh I found it every time I had to go play to get rid of my anxiety or be around other kids for social anxiety I turned to alcohol which is so crazy because now we talk about anxiety we talk about signs and different things that can be done but back then in back the then, 80s back then there was nothing nada and let alone for Latinos yes I was about to say let alone for Latinos like you like all that stuff is gets shoved under the rug and you don't talk about it if you're having you know uh, there was no talking about mental health there was no talk about any of that so I would imagine you already have anxiety your your nickname which turned from a insult to a term of endearment nerd nerd which actually today when I said I had to leave my work happy hour to go read they called me a nerd and I was like I'm gonna take that as a compliment let me tell you why (laughs) actually the title of the book was gonna be nerd so I used it was gonna be nerd coming up and down the cover of the book and it was gonna be an acronym for never ending resilience and determination So I wanted to reclaim nerd and take it a step further because I still believe that it's not okay even today to be a young kid of color and be nerdy. All we have is Urkel and Manny from Modern Family. We don't really have nerdy characters. It wasn't until Encanto, the Disney musical cartoon that came out, where the main character actually wears glasses. And a lot of people don't catch that, that, you know, here's his main character in a she Disney movie. Exactly, like, you know, she she's... looks like a little Latina girl. <laughs> and so I did do, I wanted the title of the book to be Nerd, but the publishers decided that it would, brings up images of white, nerdy, people from techies from the Silicon Valley, that that's the image nerd brings up. And I argued for a bit, but then, you know, you pick and choose your battles and maybe the title of my next book will be Nerd, Never Ending Resilience and Determination. That's just, oh my gosh, I'm telling you guys, like every, I've told everybody, I'm like, you need to read this book and my boyfriend's gonna read it as soon as, like I've been telling him about, it, like as soon as I get to a certain point, he told me, stop telling me because I want to read it. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, you need to know this. You need, oh my gosh, this is happening. And he was just like, he is so invested now in, <laughs> in reading it and everything. So as soon as I'm, as soon as I'm done, there's one particular thing that completely changed your life. Yeah. Uh, and changed the direction of your life, changed how you saw the world. I feel like you were still this kid who saw the world with rose-colored glasses. Yeah. And they were unfortunately, like, not just ripped away, like, everything was ripped from you when you walked into that gift shop gift shop when you were 11. 11. I know you talk about it in the book, so, and it's, but it's, I'm sure it's still going to be very hard for people to hear and for people to read. Um, You go in, 
your brotherhood, they had saved up some money to have a water balloon fight. You yeah. were the person being summoned to go get the water balloons. They didn't have, have any water balloons at Safeway. You go into this gift shop and you think, oh, cool, dude has water balloons. Yeah. And that one encounter led to years of you being sexually abused. It changed my life forever. Being pimped out, yeah. being trafficked, like all of these things. And as an adult now, and I know you've gone through a lot, you've worked through a lot, you've gone through all of these things. Do you, like, I know throughout the book, like I said, is a theme of you continually blaming yourself for things that have happened. Have you been able to get past that and no longer blame yourself for that? Yes. I have, and it's been a journey and a process. So for me to show you the picture of little Jesse that I showed you a few minutes ago. So I've done a lot of inner child work and forgiving myself because I blamed myself for such a long time for the sexual abuse that it happened to me because I wasn't I wasn't strong enough to fight back. I was a scared little nerdy kid. That's what happens because you're helping your mom in the kitchen. You're soft. I was already confused about being gay at that age. And I knew that. So all that was my fault. And I blamed myself. And that's the worst thing I think a child can do is blame yourself for something so horrific happening like I like happened to me. I've had to put photos of me as an infant, of me at five years old, graduating from Head Start, four years old, pictures of me at 10 years old, 11 years old. All the pictures of me before the sex abuse, I've put them on my bathroom mirror. And look at them and say, I love you, at little Jesse in different phases of my life. And that has helped me actually, That doing that over the years has helped me love myself in my totality, to be comfortable in my own skin, own my inner nerd. And I wish that as a society, my dream is that, you know, what's happening in America today is we're very divided. And I just wish we can get to a place that little kids can be who they want to be in their totality. Little nerdy Jessies don't have to walk around in, with fear of being judged, bullied, ostracized for just being who they are in their in their quirkiness, right? But forgiving myself definitely was a process. A lot of writing, a lot of therapy. You know, there were a lot of things that would trigger me. My perpetrator looked like Freddie Mercury. So, and there's a lot of songs from the move from the group Queen that I love. But when the movie came out not too long ago, and I remember watching it right that trigger moment. But luckily there's different modalities in mental health, like EMDR, brain spotting, um, ART, that desensitize triggers so that you're able to see things, listen to music, or have certain things that may pop up that would normally trigger me and send me over the edge, have the, the EMDR, the ART, the, the brain spotting, the different modalities modalities and therapy have helped me be able to desensitize those, those triggers to be able to go through it and um, and still love myself. You know, people talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and that, oh, I was a victim of PTSD. I have PTSD. Recently, I went to a, a retreat for men that have experienced sexual trauma at my age, right? I'm 48. I just turned 48. And I learned to not use PTSD. PTSD anymore. I use PTSI. By changing disorder to injury, it was empowering.
empowering for me because I know that an injury can be healed. Exactly. And a disorder blames the individual. And it wasn't my fault. So by me saying, you know, yeah, I have some PTSI issues, but I'm able to heal. And I'm a lot better today than I was yesterday. That so. is so powerful. I, I mean, instantly I knew where you were going. Yeah, with, you like, did. Changing to the eye, because you're right. Like an injury can be You cut it. You cut yeah. it, totally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got you, I got you. No, but I get, I mean, prior to us hitting record, I was telling you that I had a trigger moment today from a song, because I can't, it's still, like, everything comes back. And, you know, people don't, some people realize it, but some people don't realize, like, sense, our senses and all of the different things can trigger something. So whether it's a scent that you smell yeah. that takes you back, for me, it's a song that takes me back to uh, my assault. There's different things, and, and having to learn how to, to deal with that. I feel like to a certain point I have and to a certain point I haven't, but when people go through such horrific trauma, now I will say this, and I already told, we, we talked a lot before we even hit record, so when I was reading this, all I wanted to do was like save this little boy, and I wanted to like, when I'm hearing of this chapter, and this went on for years. Three years, 11 to 14. And, and no one knew. And then, you know, I think it's so important when we have these conversations because you don't, you know, especially as Latinos, especially anybody that comes from communities of color, it's not talked about of, like, tell us if this happens. What, like, I, I hear the normal thing of these predators, because that's what they are, these, these predators, these monsters, is saying, like, I, I'll know where you live. I'll kill your family. I will hurt them, da 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 And in your case, you were like, one day you're like, fuck this. He's not going to do anything. And he's, he, then he shows up in your uh-huh. neighborhood. Yeah. And that was a scary part, because you're then forced to live in fear. I mean, you're held captive without being held captive, because it wasn't as if I was locked in that storage room for three years, right? But it was where the sex trafficking would take place. When you're living in that kind of paranoid fear, and I talk about it over the years, the anxiety attacks I would have. I would have dreams and nightmares of the shopkeeper everywhere. Everywhere I looked, he would be behind trees, driving in cars. And um, <laughs> But luckily, over the years, I've been able to work through those traumas. And the reason I wrote my memoir, you know, I'm Not Broken, is to inspire others to not give up in spite of our often painful realities that we go through, especially knowing that these issues are not talked about in our communities, especially Latino communities and communities of color. We don't really talk about sexual trauma. We don't talk about sex abuse. We don't talk about accessing mental health. Or even what to do if if it happens. Exactly. And so... One of my goals is to be able to give voice also to those that experienced these traumas that are no longer with us and those that just still are not at a place to be able to talk about it, that when they read my memoir, I'm Not Broken, that they know that there's someone out there that can relate to them and knows what it's like to be afraid, knows what it's like to break to want to give up and eventually find hope and that people believed in me and that I went from being this 18-year-old, strung out, wannabe cholo, sex worker, sleeping in Balboa Park here in San Diego to getting clean, graduating from Berkeley and graduating from Harvard and doing everything I can through philanthropy to create a better life for other people in this world. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more Wine and Cheese Man. Chances are you aren't sharing an epic dinner with your friends right now, but you could be. Just book a seat at a private dining event with your Chase Sapphire Reserve card. Then get to it. A multi-course menu, insane flavors, a wine pairing. Ooh, is that crispy duck? Experience more unforgettable dinners with private dining events from Sapphire Reserve. 
Chase, make more of what's yours. Learn more at chase.com slash sapphire reserve. Cards issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a member of FDIC. Subject to credit approval. Term supply. Seriously, reading through everything, I was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Because in an instant, your life was changed. And then, you know, like we were saying, we're not told what to do when something like this happens. I think what made me really sad reading it was that you never felt like you belonged no matter where you were. Like, even prior to that happening, you were like, can't get any good attention from my dad. My brother is always picking on me. And, which I think is normal stuff, right? But then from it to just go from, and literally in the blink of an eye, just shift so much. And then that literally pushed you into, like, by the time, what, you're 11, you're doing drugs. Yeah. Uh, so you go from, you know, you're drinking alcohol at nine, you're doing drugs at 11. Like, I think what, the weed was the first thing that they gave you, Yeah, right? weed was the first, and then weed with coke, then coke, and then it just took off to different stuff. And, and at 11 years old, you know, and it wasn't like I was drinking at nine, like, every day, no, right? <laughs> you know, like, little, little right? tiny, you know, so, but right, exactly. the fact that you took it and it felt so good. Exactly, exactly. That's, like, most kids are like, ah. <laughs> like, like, I still take drink, certain drinks. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so disgusting. You're funny. Even as, you know, a 40-something-year-old, I'm like, <laughs> get this away from me. Even the smell of certain things, I'm like, oh. So, to, I can't imagine being nine and being like, and it's funny because we have tepache, which is the, the pineapple piloncillo drink in Mexico. I Now that I think about it, I mean, I was drinking tepache at even a younger age at Christmas parties in Mexico. <laughs> but um, no, and I don't condone that. So let me state that up front. You're right. Having that experience changed and marked my life forever. Everything about me changed. To me, it felt like when I was reading it, when you were changing the way, like you were changing the way that you look because you felt like if you changed the way that you look, one, people wouldn't never be able to tell what happened. But also maybe people would treat you different and not like that little nerd that you that people would call when you're young. And it happened, right? I changed and I became all of a sudden cute. I changed schools. I go from being a little wannabe, I go from being a nerd to being like stylish, you know, that cholo culture look was trendy and it's here in the barrio. So you go all of, I'm all of a sudden hyper masculine and I'm, I'm cute. And all the girls start to hit on me. The girls that I would pretend to have crushes on before who wouldn't give me the time of day are all of a sudden like, oh damn, look at Jesse. And so that negative reinforcement, well, positive reinforcement of the negative behavior just perpetuated and perpetuated a, a system for me that being hyper-masculine got me the attention I needed. And it also kept people from not knowing the real Jesse and the inner demons and struggles that I was facing, such as my sexuality, my identity, not seeing any Latinos out there on the media, on TV, that looked like me from the barrio that were either openly gay or bi or confused or non-gender binary as there is today. None of that was around. So you do your best to hide it. And the more girls I was with, the more popular I was, the more popular I was, the more people wanted to be around me, the more people wanted to be around me, the more I want to push, 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 push aside that I was confused about who and what I was. I will say when I was reading it, one of the, I thought one of the really beautiful moments was your first girlfriend. That's right, right? That's when you call her. Which one? Not the girl that you, I'm all, all of a sudden I forgot her name. Hope. Huh? Hope. Hope. So, so not my first girlfriend, but, well, yeah, I mean, but yeah, like. But I mean, like in regards to like you, like everything that you were talking about before. I remember the first girl. You were like, it felt you didn't feel right. You felt like she was pressuring you, Dude, you to time. kiss you and everything yeah. and all that. But that moment felt just very sweet and very tender. Like this was the first time that there was a mutual, without you feeling like you had 
to disconnect from yourself, that there was a mutual physicality with somebody where you didn't feel like you had to escape from anything, that you didn't feel... Again, that's how I read it, right? That may not have been your... That is exactly it. Yeah. You caught it perfectly, where I didn't have to... I wasn't playing a role. I was... It was two consensual individuals falling in love and it felt safe she made me feel safe because and you caught the other piece about you know the scene at the party and someone pointed out recently and I don't, I don't know why I never clicked that I was basically raped by her at the party because I did not want to have sex. I was scared. And here is this other girl being extremely aggressive and feeling like I have to perform. Otherwise, it's going against all of society's norms. And if anyone finds out that I'm not at 14, I'm a kid. I'm a 14-year-old kid. No kid should have to be going through this mental... Gymnastics. Exactly, yes. Yeah. That's a better way to say it. Uh, mental gymnastics. Um, just because I thought that I was supposed to. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know so there's good a catch, lot... Good yes. catch, So... There was a lot that was talking, <laughs> but there's a reason. Give me I don't want to tell everybody everything because they need to read it. It's so good. But, you know... I think that what I was thinking when I was reading that scene in at the at the party was you have been manipulated by so many people at this point and mostly by men Man. that when you finally get to a girl who's your own age and my girlfriend at the time really yeah you don't get you don't but you felt safe have, with up to that point yeah I was like you went from being like it felt like you were like oh this is cool this is safe this is whatever to being like to me it felt like that got ripped away from you as well Wow. You, caught like, you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you caught it. Exactly. No, that's exactly how it felt. And that's exactly why I wrote it, too. I've had a lot of men come up to me and say that in that in that piece of the book, cisgender, heterosexual men, Latino men in particular, that have said, wow, I had a very similar experience. You know, I was nine years old and someone who was 13, a girl, you know, threw herself on me. And I've been hearing more and more of these stories and it's beautiful to be able to be at a place to be able to talk about it and write about it openly, to be able to create space for other individuals to start addressing their own traumas. Not even traumas, I don't want to say it that way. Their own issues of identity. Because um, one of the things I also try to talk about in that chapter, in that scene, was how certain parts of my body would not react. And I think we don't talk about that as a teen when you're like, oh my God, this isn't happening. Like, what's going on? I can't even imagine how confusing it was because you're one, you know, it's like at one point you're like, am I, you know, you're, you're still trying to figure out what your own sexual identity is. And I think even just your own identity as a human is, right? As we all are at that age, but you have these extra layers that that you didn't know anybody else would be dealing with. You're not telling anybody. You're not talking about it. But then not responding, your body not responding in the way that you think it should be responding. Like, I can't even imagine how like the mental more, gymnastics. Yes, the mental gymnastics that were happening. Like, how much more stressful that comes, and then when you're stressed, that right, exactly, like, exactly, more. exactly. <laughs> so oh my god! Like, ay, ay, ay. But when you finally, because you know, you go from being this kid who's super close to this mom and to becoming more and more rebellious and more and more defiant and all of these things and when you finally the dam breaks with the white boy and I'm not going to get into it because you got to read the book but when the dam breaks with the white boy and you end up having to go to the principal's office and and 
Uh, My life changes again. Yeah, like dramatically. You finally, like literally, the dam breaks and you just say everything that's been happening to you, and finally tell an adult, and finally tell your friend's mom, Joy, right? Joy and the principal of what happened. And then you go, and I was, this is where I got so pissed off. You finally say what's all happened to you. Go to this therapist. Your mom is like, can we do family therapy? Can we do, and you're going to this therapist for like two years, and she does not give a fuck about you. Four. Huh? For four years. For oh, four years. 14 to 18. And this woman doesn't give a crap about you. And, and you're right in here, like, you're asking her for, you're, you're like asking her for resources. That's all you can do. And she does not even help you. She's just and I'm a steady paycheck by the state for her and no child should ever be left alone to maneuver the mental health system by themselves and that's where I think greater a need for accountability and oversight is needed because we didn't know what our rights were and in retrospect everything that happened to me during therapy you would think and I'm assuming that when that happened you thought oh my god great he's reaching out for help and they're gonna like totally save his life now and it didn't happen that way yeah no I was like oh my gosh this is awesome finally and then you read more and you're like then you get pissed off or at least I'm getting pissed off because I'm like are you serious like this kid has been through and I mean I know you're a grown man but I'm reading as a, right I'm reading as it as you're telling it as a kid and you are a kid at that point and I'm getting so angry I can't even imagine the things because at that point you hadn't told your mom right no my mom knew yeah yeah so and I encourage the readers to read the book but there's a scene where I told my mom I was forced to tell my mom by the authorities once again by myself no one stepped in to help no one helped translate what was happening and here I am a 14 year old kid if it was hard for me I can't even imagine what it must have been like for my mom to hear that from her child. I don't think any mother is ready to hear that from their kid, let alone not knowing where to go for help. You're an immigrant in this country. You work two to three jobs, busting your ass to raise a family, and now this? And so then when she went with me to my first therapy appointment, the therapist treated her like shit, treated us like shit and never once recommended drug and alcohol treatment, knew about the sex work, knew about the drug addictions, never once did anything, nor nor try to speak to my mom or my dad. And then my dad left, and so I spiraled even further into the dark, hopeless life of drug addiction and making my mom's life hell because I was still so angry at her for giving me life and loving me and loving little nerdy Jesse. If you didn't love me for who I was so nerdy, then maybe I would have been different. And that goes back to what you're saying about placing the blame on myself. And interestingly enough, me and my brother are super close. My brother's one of my biggest champions. Me and my mom are obviously super close. Once I learned how to allow myself to be loved, once I got clean, it's like the whole world opened up for me. And my brother loves me for me. And I never, (laughs) that would have never happened, right? You finally get to this point where she's gives you she basically gives you an ultimatum because you stole drugs from her and she's like i can't trust you you do more drugs than anybody i know you need to go and you like turning around on her what are you doing with me does that make you drug addict too but she kind of anteed up and said okay then we're both going to narcotics anonymous and but even prior to that and i apologize for skipping this the first time I like it really feels like somebody believed in you was when you got called into the office at school mm. and you have somebody in Z, Z. say <laughs> you want to go to college 
and he kind of shook you into to saying something because you're you have this like super I don't give a fuck attitude totally. fuck you I don't care I don't care I don't care I don't care and this guy's like he's from STSU gets in your face and it's like it's motherfuckers like you love motherfuckers like you that give us a bad name and like going off on you and everything but it kind of shook something in you that and then he apologized to you and that it felt like you're like wait a second dude's apologizing to me yeah. what and it made it almost it felt like it made you like listen okay and then that again changed your life again because it started like you were saying your mom has always been the person who planted the seeds but you never had anybody start watering the seeds so there was a little sprinkle <laughs> then Frank was Frank. some water and then it's like it was so lovely to see all of these people like as much as you didn't believe in yourself you had so many people that believed in you for you and I think sometimes when we are in so much pain and so much and don't know where to turn we need that we need people to believe in us when we can't believe in ourselves and you had these people along your life who believed in you even if you're still doing drugs even if you're still turning tricks even if you're still and maybe they don't know all of that they may know some of it they may know not but there was still so many people in your life that you came across that knew you were special but when you're going through it you don't see it right you don't see that in retrospect and in writing the memoir in writing my book I call those moments like moments of magic it's because I love my mom and I knew the acronym for moments of magic would be mom so I know right so my moms and my moments of magic were people coming into my life at exactly the right time the thing about Z and the reason I put it in the book was how impactful Z was in it was the first time that I felt seen I felt that another Latino a Latino young man saw me saw me enough to apologize saw me enough to believe in me and he let me cry and it was the first time I think that I had a glimmer of hope yet had you asked me that at that point in time nah I mean I, I but in retrospect it was you're right when you look back and you're able to say wow that was a beautiful moment of magic in my life and meeting Frank which is Fred Sotelo you know and and who who told you to meet with me yeah, and, he's like you gotta meet him and he's he's been a um it's these Latino men that I've come across in my journey, as well as, you know, others, right, that I talk about in my memoir. But it's just really beautiful when you grow up scared, not feeling a part of, not masculine enough. You're a nerdy little kid that you, everyone calls you weak and you feel weak. And then all of a sudden there's all these Latino men that are kind of mobilizing around you. It's just beautiful to see men of color coming together to support one another, regardless of the differences. And that was beautiful for me. And then going through everything, and then you talk about, and I'm not gonna give, you talk about the last time you ever did drugs, and it was a very- Why are you giving away my book? <laughs> I'm not, I'm just saying, you talk about the last time you did, and that hurt. was like a very traumatic thing. And then you get to start focusing. Like the crazy thing, I think when I'm, when I keep reading this is you kept like how you were so embedded in drugs, and you kept going to school, even if you did. You find like everything like you still like there. You always found a way to get through. You were still going to school. You graduated. You go to college, and you're still in the midst of all of these things, and you're still. I mean, I think that there was always a part of you that I think you you acknowledge it that you wanted to get out. You didn't know how, but I think that to me is why you still stayed in school and still did those things because maybe you didn't know it at the time, but it was like you kind of knew that was your way out. Huh? I never thought about it that way. Interesting. School provider. <laughs> I found my transcripts the other day, and it goes from seventh grade to twelfth grade. 
And when you when I look over that, tra- I saw it over with, I reviewed it with a friend of mine. F, D, F, D, G, F. Incomplete, incomplete, no grade. Truancies impact grades. And so how I got passed on from grade to grade though, I don't know. And what I talk about in my book is the apathy of a lot of teachers that just didn't give a fuck. It's the truth, it happens. Teachers that didn't care. I have the choice to focus on the 100 teachers that didn't care about me or focus on the one or two that really did. And I choose today to not live in that anger and resentment focused on those 100 that didn't and really focus on the positive, the assumption of positive intent from the two or three that did. And it keeps me going. I think also lovely is when you talk, because I think so many of us, when we're looking for support, we look within our own community. You found support outside of your, you know, outside of the, within the Latino community as well, but even outside of the Latino community in unexpected places. And I think that's really beautiful to remind people that sometimes those those moments, those, um, those people, they don't necessarily, like, they can, have, they can come from anywhere. Well, you mentioned my last night using, and chapter 15 in the book, I believe it is. Don't be giving away your book. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I just um, said that. <laughs> well, no, like, so had my sponsor was black and I didn't want him as my sponsor and I had already gone to my first NA meeting and I didn't stay clean right away I relapsed and my last night using I often wonder one of my biggest moments of magic was him picking up the phone so late at night and talking to me he could have not picked up the phone he could have said why are you calling me this late call me tomorrow and hang up on me but he didn't and you're right there were so many people that were not latino black white that really came into my life at exactly the right moment and my first sponsor that black man taught me how to be a man in recovery and taught me how to forgive and taught me how to love me again by loving me when i didn't love myself and that is really powerful because he looked like Debo from Friday. You know, he's big, he's mean looking and got a deep voice. And, and so he looks like Debo from Friday and he's very loving and caring and tender. Didn't take my shit, but allowed little Jesse to become the man that I am today, to be a successful published author, award-winning published author, yes. And being able to achieve the dreams that I never even thought were possible. Travel to places in the world that I only read in National Geographic magazines. Go to places and eat foods and meet people. Have you been to Omaha? I have not gone to (laughs) Omaha yet. (laughs) And you'll get it if you read the book. (laughs) You'll get it when you read the book, exactly. I haven't gone to Omaha yet. That's funny you asked that. Um, But that's on my bucket list. I haven't done Nebraska yet. Oh, you're funny. I love it. So what was your favorite part of the journey? Like, what stood out to you the most about my book that... I'm curious. Oh, my gosh. Not like the one moment, but... One thing that stuck out to me, and I think that a lot of people can relate to, and I was relating to, is not feeling like you fit in. You know, I've, and I've told you, I've discussed this on the podcast, and I've actually had a podcast about it where I feel like I've, my entire life I've been felt like I was told I was too much, or I'm not enough, or I have to change this about myself, and I have to change that about myself. So when you were talking about your experience at Harvard, I actually have Latino friends that went to Harvard. My boss went to Harvard. And, and but even though I've not been to Harvard, I can relate to the fact of just feeling like I'm somebody who's very personable, but I also feel like I'm not somebody who lets people easily see truly who I am. That I'm always kind of like, and I and I and I've learned to no longer to let this go. But I always feel like I always had to mold myself accordingly to the group that I was around. Uh, 
in order to be accepted. Code switch. Full on code switching. And I think of it now and it makes me sad that we have to do that. And people still do that, you know, that they, and so that was one thing for me, like, that just really stood out, that I really related to, when you're talking about that in your epilogue. What I love about you, though, is that I wonder if you're doing these podcasts and on this journey that you're on, this parallel journey, you know, you have your day job, your career, and then you're doing your podcasts, and I wonder if this is your platform for future growth as a Latina entrepreneur in communications to inspire other Latinas to find their voice, whether it's through podcasting, but a way in a, in a place where they can be their true authentic selves without fear of being judged. I hope so. To be I, I do because I feel like I've had a very untra- I've had a very untraditional route in regards to like graduating, going to college, and all of these and just my career and, and all of those things. I didn't even graduate college till I was thirty seven. Yes, Queen. Yeah. Yes. So, but I think. But you graduated. I graduated. That's what's and up. Nobody forced me to do it. It's something that I wanted to do for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think so many times we're on this journey and we let so many people dictate what our journey is for us that we forget that we're the ones who are steering the wheel. We're the ones who are behind, you know, behind. We're the drivers of our life and we can't let anybody take that away. And it, it makes me thank you. It makes me uh, so sad when I hear things like, you had somebody bank the steering wheel from you. To know that you finally have that back and not only do you have that back, but you're bringing others for the ride and helping other young people find their way and, and supporting them and everything is such a huge thing because it could be, it was, it could have been so easy for you to not go to Berkeley because you're leaving your mom. San Diego, right. You're leaving San Diego, the only place you've ever called home. Mm-hmm. It could have been that your mom had this dream of you of going to SDSU. The best university in the world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta read the book. Yeah, you gotta read it. You gotta read it. See, this is making people like, I wanna read it. Um, and then your mom not knowing what Harvard, you know, what Harvard is right. until she tells people at her work, oh, that um, that my son got into Harvard, and then once everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Then it, oh, then she's like all excited for you and everything. And, literally across the country to do that and then to you know I can imagine how at this point of putting yourself in a very uncomfortable position when it could have been so easy for you to just not because yes it's Harvard but you've been in so many uncomfortable positions your entire life I could have could have eas- you could have easily said no hell no I'm not gonna do this I, but you were like facing the unknown which in the in your childhood the unknown was always a bad thing and now it turned into this really beautiful wonderful thing when you know and now look at you jumping into the cap jumping into the abyss or the chasm of the unknown it's um it's scary and oftentimes I need to have faith and be comfortable and serene in the ambiguity when oftentimes we don't know where we're going I got a DM a DM right that's what they're called yeah. on Instagram I'm so new to social media Somebody slid into the right right so someone <laughs> no this Latina woman a DACA recipient from Guadalajara sent me a message. She read the book and she sent me this beautiful DM that made me cry because it brings me back to my purpose and my intent of writing my book. And she talked about how she felt alone for so long in college and how she related to my story of feeling alone, like I don't fit in, which I think happens to a lot of us, especially those of us that come from immigrant families, come from the barrio, and maybe even just the, you know, folks, it's I think a universal feeling where we oftentimes feel 
we just don't belong anywhere sometimes. And if I can give hope in my writing so that someone doesn't give up and hang in there just one more day, then my job is done. I, I hope that you got a message of inspiration, inspiration, resilience in my writing to let you know that you can achieve anything you want to achieve. And I was just saying, I, like, I love the way you wrote this because it's not like overcomplicated. It's not over like, and, and obviously you're, I, like, as I'm saying these things, you're like, that's exactly what I intended. That's exactly, so obviously the way you wrote this, like, it, it touched me in the way that I'm receiving it the way that you intended it, which makes me very happy. And once again, when you're in Harvard, you find comfort, you find community outside of the community. Outside of the community. You know, which, you know, again, I think so many of us hold on to to our community for comfort, but sometimes we have to realize that that's not always there. So I'm glad you were able to find that. Once you, what brought you to this, like, you you now do all of this wonderful, amazing work in regards to philanthropy, and you've written this book. What was, and how hard was it to write this book? Writing the book, well, I initially started writing the book when my dad died. And I knew that I wanted to document history of the family as well. I wanted to leave a written document so that my nieces and nephews and their kids and the next generation had a document that they can turn to, not just my story, but the story of, in particular, my abuelitas, my grandmas on both sides of the family, and their stories of resilience and their journey into this country and their strength to overcome obstacles, to keep the family together, to communicate to them that they had something that they can turn to when they feel bad, when they feel that they can't make it. It's like, nah, you have a whole lineage of, you, you have a bunch of ancestors, blood flowing through your veins that are of strong women in particular that fought to keep their family together. And nah, you're not gonna give up. I'm not gonna give up. Uh-uh. If my, if my ancestors were able to do this and my uncle was able to go through this and he still made it through, then you know what I can too. And that was really one of my main purposes in, in, in writing it. It wasn't with the intention of publishing. But then when I was asked to publish, because uh, I'm a public speaker, I've spoken at conventions all over the world on recovery and drug addiction and substance abuse. And people would line up and they'd hug me after and they'd cry and they'd say, when are you gonna write your book? So when I finally decided to find a publisher, no one was willing to take on my book. Ask, I think the writing? That, well, but yeah, not only just the writing, but the publishing part, because let me just say, and let me make sure people are aware, this is a major publisher that took on your book. It, like, it's, and look, it's not a self-public, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing, there's nothing wrong with small, like, small publishing houses that publishing cater house. to communities of color. I have a friend who just started her own publishing house. Nice. Yeah, which, and I'm fully here to support. But I also think it's really important that we're not just relegated to those, that our voices are heard on a larger scale. So you have a major publisher backing you as You're well. funny, I love it. No, well, it's funny because I tried to get the support of Latinos and publishing and I would get no response. I try to reach out. So once again, I go back to what I said earlier. I had over a hundred and something rejection letters by agents, a lot of them agents of color that would not want to pick up my story. I had one even say that my writing was mediocre at best and that no one would want to publish my book because I talk about abuse and addiction from a male perspective. And so sometimes I'm like, right. And sometimes I'm like, well, look at me now. Right. Cause 
I got to the publishing world through the movie industry. I ended up meeting with some executives at a certain streaming company in LA and another company, a movie production um, company in LA, and they asked me, where are you with your book? Have you published? We want to do something with your manuscript, but we need you to publish it. And I said, I can't find a publisher. I can't find an agent. They said, where are you? I said, I can't find an agent. And I almost started crying because I was I felt so defeated. I felt I hit that roadblock again, right? Like I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. Why isn't this happening? And then they introduced me to somebody, a Mexicano, a guy from Mexico, Leopoldo Gut. Leopoldo introduced me to his agent, a white British woman from London who lives in New York. She became my agent, and within two months, I was in a bidding war with Penguin Random House and Harper Collins. You went with Penguin Random House. And I went with Penguin Random House, and they agreed to do my book in both English and Spanish. I'm Not Broken came out in August, and No Estoy Roto, the Spanish translation, comes out in January. Both audiobooks were read by me. If you haven't listened to the audiobook, I highly recommend it. I put my heart and soul into reading it. And it's just a powerful journey of me reclaiming my life. Very Judith. That's amazing. So wait, does this mean that this streaming service is going to be doing something? <laughs> you opened your mouth. I got to ask. No, I, I, I don't know yet. I, um, I don't know where that's going. I pray that it, it does go somewhere. Right now, what I'm trying to do is carry a message of hope and inspire other Latinos to tell their story in writing as well. Too often, I think we feel that our writing isn't good enough. I'm never going to get published. If I had listened to the hundred rejection letters that I received, I would have never gotten to where I am. And thank God for Reina Grande, the author of The Distance Between Us. She just wrote a book, A Ballad of Love and Glory. If you haven't read Reina Grande's book, I highly recommend it. But she's one of the Latina authors that I say genuinely supports other authors in their journey. Sandra Cisneros wrote the blurb on the cover of my book. She didn't know me from Adam, and here she is supporting a Latino author. You know, and, and I can either focus on the 98 authors that didn't respond to my call for help, or I can focus on the ones that did. And by focusing on the ones that did, it makes a huge difference because it brings a huge smile across my face. And I just hope other Latinos out there that want to tell their story don't give up. We all have a story to tell. So what's next? Ooh. So I've been doing a lot of public speaking. I've been speaking to law firms. I've been speaking at universities. A few weeks ago, I was at USC. Have you made it to SDSU yet? I haven't made, I haven't gone to SDSU yet. You better invite your mom the day you're at SDSU. <laughs> I want to meet your mom. I know, and I, right? And the day I want to go to that SDSU one too. My dream is to go back to City College, San Diego City College, and talk to students, talk to professors and teachers, talk to staff and financial aid office about the importance that they have in people's lives. More importantly for me, I think the community college journey was everything I needed to learn to be successful at Berkeley and Harvard, I learned in community college. And that's my dream, more so than state. And to maybe teach a class on race, class, gender, and sexuality, race and public policy, or maybe a creative writing course that encourages other people to write a memoir. The world is opening up to me in ways that I never could have imagined. And I know you're witnessing exactly the same thing in your journey, so you relate. And trying to live a life of abundance and focus on the positive and not the scarcity, feeling like I'm competing for resources. No, if you succeed, I succeed. And if we can help others succeed, even more so better. Oh my gosh. This is so good. Well, I'm still going to talk to you more after I hit stop hitting record, but how can people reach out? Again, the the book is I'm Not Broken, a memoir by Jess Leon. I will 
put the link. You can. It's like I got mine at Barnes and Noble, so it's at Barnes and Noble. Some tar, I think you can get it on Target online. I didn't see it Target in the store. It, it's it's on all the different retailers. You got the Walmart, Amazon, Target, uh, Amazon, uh, Target, uh, Barnes and Nobles. But you also have the local independent bookstores in your yes. community, like Warwick's carries it, Libelula in. Bookshop.org, and they'll connect you to all the local bookshops. Local independent bookstores. Libelula here in Barrio Logan carries it. The audiobook is on Audible, is on Apple. I think it's called Apple Music. It's on all the different platforms. And what would help me is readers to write a review. Take the time and write a review on Goodreads or wherever you purchased it. Uh, recommend it to others. And by all means, reach out to me at Jesse Leon Author. At, yeah, at Jesse Leon Author. Those are what they call, what do they call them? Handles? My handles. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm so new to social media, but all right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, that that would help. And we, I still need words of encouragement from people to say, hey, thank you for telling your story. Well, I'm telling you, thank you for telling your story. It's beautiful. It's it's heart wrenching. It's inspiring. It's like every it literally takes you like through the whole gamut of emotions. Awesome. It makes you want to protect that little boy and then makes you like so proud of that that person at the end it's like oh my god like tell you it takes you through all of <laughs> thank you for saying that i needed to hear that today it's been uh it's been it's been an interesting journey feeling vulnerable um so thank you it means a lot please i'm gonna put the link in the show notes reach out to jesse read the book if you've read the book or anything like share with us buy one for somebody else yeah invite like pass along whatever if you have somebody who's a, who loves to read and even if you have somebody who doesn't love to read but who could use a little bit of inspiration yeah like this is such a good book jesse thank you so much <laughs> Thank you. It means oh a lot. Gosh. En serio. Me encantó mucho estar aquí contigo. Your energy, your smile. Just watching you is yeah. fills me with so much joy. And I can't wait to come back for the Spanish version. Yeah. Were you scared that I didn't have any um, note, like any questions written down? Actually, no. It was helpful. It was it was beautiful to just have a flow of conversation. And I'm excited to hear how it sounds with all the background music and noise. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out because I hope the listeners do get a sense of just the natural conversation. Yes, and I totally forgot to tell you the, the wine that I was drinking. So I'm drinking a M. Bonamy Cremant de I This is French. I don't know how to say it. You know how to say that? I don't know. It's a, You're asking me. I still say Merlot. It is a sparkling uh, Cabernet Franc. And it is delicious. I'm I'm a fan of it. It's still really cold. So uh, if you are in San Diego, come to the San Diego area, make sure to come visit Whetstone Wine Bar. They have been very, very supportive of the podcast and, again, have been just really awesome to let us use some space to be able to record. So check check out Whetstone Wine Bar, check out Jesse's book, and until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at the Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at the Wine and Chisme podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.